With all that out of the way, Mark chapter 1, and Pastor Bob left off on chapter, I mean, verse 20 last week, and he ended with Jesus calling some of his first disciples. So we're going to start tonight in verse 21. So if you have your Bibles or your phone, your tablet, or if you're new here, all of our notes are on our app. We have an app for Apple and Android devices, and you can also pull it up on our church website right on your phone and track along with our verses too. But verse 21, so chapter 1, verse 21, here's what it says. They went into Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Well, Capernaum, later on tonight I'll give us a little map so we can see where it is on the map, but I do have two pictures for us. Many of you probably have been on our Israel trip, maybe you've seen this site. That's a split screen, by the way, in case it looks funny. To the left, that white part in the back, that is the Capernaum sanctuary that we're reading about. And up front, those kind of black rocks, that's people's houses. But if you look close, there's a, a darker layer beneath the white. And over here on the right, that's the split screen part. The black lower part, that is the actual synagogue that Jesus would have taught in. Because like most places, you know, we all build on ruins. You knock things down or somebody does and people rebuild it later. So it's been rebuilt, but that lower part is the original part likely where Jesus stood and taught in this verse we're reading. So once all the war and hostilities die down as a church, we will take that trip again. We had one scheduled that had to be canceled. If you want to see that very building, sign up for our next Israel trip. But um, that's a very small town. It's a really a small village. And unlike our modern churches like here at Calvary, the tradition in those small towns in the synagogue, they didn't have a regular pastor or a teacher, priest. They had not even had a rotating team like we do here at Calvary. They would let visiting teachers teach. So it was not unusual for Jesus as the maybe visiting rabbi to get up and teach that day. And, and he got up and taught and verse 22 will tell us the response. Let's read it. It says, the people were amazed at his teaching. Then it tells us why. Because he taught them as one who had authority. That's the key, the word authority. Not as the teachers of the law, and I would add in parentheses, like the guys they were used to hearing. So it was totally different. Um, and he taught differently. They were amazed. Well, it told us why he had authority, but why did he have authority? Well, let's look at a few reasons. This is not every reason, by the way, but it's kind of some of the main ones. Jesus taught with authority because he had authority. Remember, he was fully God, but also fully man. He was empowered by God because he was God in the person of Jesus Christ, so he had authority that these other teachers did not. These other religious teachers were teaching on ritual and religion, and it was more in man's authority. Jesus came in God's authority. And he had authority because he was spirit-filled. You know, God would fill him, empower him to do miracles, different things, also to teach. He was full of the Holy Spirit's authority, and that's why it just seemed like such a different style, a different way. And then finally, if you know all through Scripture, Jesus always says to when he talks to God, not, not my will, Father, but yours. Your will be done. We know those verses, including in the Garden of the Gethsemane. What did he say? If there's any other way, Father, if there's any way possible for me not to go to the cross, but there wasn't, but at the end he goes, 
your will be done. He taught with authority because he was always in God's will. He was literally being, you might think of it as being, he was God the Father's mouthpiece. So it was fresh, it was new, it was powerful, totally different than what any of the people had ever seen before. Verse 23, there's a little curveball coming. It says, just then, as he was finished teaching maybe, during the teaching, not real sure, in their synagogue, there was a man who was possessed by an impure spirit, and he cried out. Now, we probably need to pause right there for a second, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but we need to talk about possession versus oppression. Because hopefully in this room, we're all Christ followers, believers, we're following Jesus. If you're a Christ follower and you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then the Holy Spirit entered you at that moment. So there's no room in that condo for Satan, if you think about it. God doesn't share his living space with the enemy. So as Christ followers, we cannot be possessed. This man is possessed. In other words, he's being controlled. He has no power over his own actions, his words. But if you're not a Christ follower, we can fix that in tonight. I'll give you a chance to come pray with me, talk to me. So we can't be possessed, but even as Christ followers, we can be oppressed. We can be attacked. The enemy can't control us, take our bodies over, make us do crazy stuff, but he can try to attack us, you know, physically. Think about the story of Job. You know, Job was a believer. Look what happened to him. I would say he was oppressed pretty rigorously, wouldn't you? He got physically ruined, financially ruined, big sores. He was sick. All his family was killed, but he never was possessed or controlled by Satan. And even God told Satan, remember, do anything you want, but don't kill him because he could not take him over. So this man is taken over by demons. And so, but notice a couple of things. He's in the synagogue, so he's a Jew, because a Gentile wouldn't have been welcome there. So he's not a pagan. He's a Jewish man that's possessed. He's also in the church or a spiritual place, a synagogue. Not really where Hollywood, you know, Hollywood always says holy water scares off demons and all these other ritualistic things. Well, this man is up in the church, and he's saying crazy stuff and disrupting things. So the question becomes, as you read and study this, then why is he there? What is he doing there? What's his purpose? Well, Scripture is not crystal clear, but I do think we can make, as a group, an educated guess. And if you don't want to guess with me, you can just call it Dave's opinion, like we usually do here on Wednesday night. Um, He's not there, in my opinion, to be taught by Jesus because, remember, he's possessed. So he's not there to learn anything. He's also not there to be healed. He's possessed and controlled by these demons. He doesn't want to be healed. The demons don't want to be healed anyway. So then why is he likely? You know, it's not certain, but why is he likely there? Well, I'll give you three reasons. He wants to distract the people from the teaching. He wants to disrupt the thing and, and cause chaos, and he's really there, at least in my mind, to defeat the gospel. He's trying to come against God, he thinks. Don't you know you can't challenge God by now? You know, these demons never learn, do they? Just like the Pharisees. They always try to trick Jesus. It never works. But if you're taking notes tonight, this is our first main point you might want to write down because this applies to us. Satan will use discouragement distractions, and even people to 
get our gaze off of Jesus, to distract us, to disrupt us, to take our focus off of Jesus at the center of it all. He wants to take our eyes off of God's word, God's promises, and he's trying to derail our Christian walk. He's still trying to do that today. Don't let him. We'll look at another verse in a few minutes to tell us some techniques of how to stop that. But look in verse 24 what these demons ask. What do you want with us? It's plural, us. So there must be more than one. You know, there was another story about a legion of demons inside a person. Jesus of Nazareth. They know who he is. Have you come to destroy us? Plural again. But look at the next sentence. This is probably the most important. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's interesting, but in a way to me kind of sad. These demons or this demon speaking knows this is the Son, the Holy One of God. But the religious teachers, the leaders, the people in the room don't really believe that. But the demons do. Which is a great, by the way, proof that just knowing who Jesus God and He's God and believing in Him won't get you to heaven because these demons aren't saved, but they know Jesus is powerful. And also notice they said, You're the Holy One. In the next verse, um, we'll see Him rebuke them. But they ask a question Have you come to destroy us? And what they really mean by that, we know you can, we believe you can, we know you're able, in other words, is that what you've come to do? And, and their work and their influence, by the way, would be to possess this man. So they know he has the power to undo their, their dirty work. But look what Jesus tells them in the next verse, 25. Be quiet. That's all he said. And he said it with a stern voice, the scripture says. Then he says, come out of him. The impure spirit, spirits may be plural, shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. But notice what Jesus did. He doesn't have a long, drawn-out conversation. He doesn't engage this demon and banter back and forth. He gives him an order, which the demon must obey. He also doesn't go into any long, drawn-out rituals like the Jewish priest would have. He just says, get out of there, and the demon obeyed. He commands it because he once again, remember, go back to our verse we started with. He came in authority. He also has the authority to defeat Satan. Now, for us, being that we're not able to be possessed, but some of these same principles would apply to us, and we're going to look at a verse out of James and to see what I'm talking about. And it has kind of three keys in it. Let's look at it. Great verse. The first key for us, if we're being oppressed, the enemy's attacking us, in other words. He's coming against us. He's wrecking our lives. He's causing havoc in our life. Submit yourselves to God. That's the first step. Full submission. I got to take me off the throne. Remember, Pastor David had the throne. Who's on your throne? I can't be on the throne. I have to be fully submitted to God. So do you. And then it says resist. In other words, put up a fight. Resist the enemy. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was tempted, he, he resisted. He told him no, and he quoted scripture to him. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, because he doesn't have the power God does. And then finally, this might be maybe the most important part, draw near to God. He's our protector, he's our shield, he's our great help in time of need. 
draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. So submit, resist, draw near to God. That's how we fight this oppression that even maybe we might go through. This amazed the people. Verse 27 tells us that. It says, the people were all so amazed, they asked each other, what is this? What is this new teaching? And he teaches with authority. Like, we've never seen that. We never heard this kind of stuff. And then they add on to it, he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. So that sounds like they've never seen that before either, by the way. News about him, of this strong new method of teaching and this casting out of demons, spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So the people are amazed at this new way. And it's kind of interesting to me, too, you know, in the early church, what they call the early church, the way. If you read kind of Bible history, it's the way, the new way of teaching, which really lines up with Scripture. Remember, there's a verse that says, don't put new wine in old wineskins. The old wineskin would be the Pharisees and the religious leaders' way of teaching. Jesus' new way of teaching is new wine for the people. And he also cast out these demons in a new way. Because the, the Jewish priest had a system, but it was this long, drawn-out, elaborate ritual. And they would even add all these kind of candles and smoke and say all these certain things. And it would take forever. And most of the time, it didn't work. It was hit or miss at best. It was a long, ritualistic ceremony that usually failed. Jesus just said, get out of there. And they'd never seen such a thing like that. So the news of all this spread all through the region. And if you look at the map of Israel, we'll look at one later tonight. Their Galilee region is about a third of the country. So a third of the country is, word is spreading like wildfire. Let's keep reading, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. If you watch The Chosen, you'll see some of this stuff. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began, look what she did. Don't miss that part. She began to wait on the, the group, Jesus and the others. So Jesus' ministry, he wasn't going through Capernaum, calling out, got any more demons? Can I fix it for you? Can I heal sickness, um, leprosy? He went to one house, healed one sick person in a private home with really no witnesses except his early disciples. But the lady starts serving right away. She's so glad, and that's our next point to write down if you're taking notes. When we serve, and I'm looking around the room, I see servants on the camera, I see guest service servants, I see, or at least I can imagine, there's secret servants up in the Hollywood studio production room that's putting all these slides up for us. There's people in the sound booth. There's people outside in the parking lot. There's people in our kids' ministry. This whole place is packed with servants. But when we serve at our church, we sometimes think we're serving Calvary Chapel. We're not. This point says we're serving the Lord, and we do it out of gratitude. And really, in a way, I'd make the case just like this lady. She was so grateful for her healing, she wanted to serve. In the same way, aren't we grateful for our salvation? That was our healing. We had a sin problem that Christ healed us from. 
we can kind of be so grateful. Hopefully, you want to serve. That's who you're serving. So don't mistake. It's not Calvary. It's the Lord when you're volunteering. He sees. He knows. He sees all the things you're doing behind the scenes that even us pastors don't know about. God knows, and you're really, as Scripture says, storing up treasure in heaven for yourself. But even better than that, you're pleasing the Lord by serving him. You're not serving man, you're serving God. Okay, verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all of the sick and demon-possessed. So the rest of the ones in Capernaum is what that means. The whole town gathered at the door because word got out by now. And Jesus healed many who had various types of diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak. He let the first one speak, but none of the rest, because they all knew who he was, and he did not want that revealed yet. It wasn't his time to be revealed. After sunset, all that really means is the Sabbath is now over. You know, the Jews measure time different than we do. It was sundown to sundown. So when the sun goes down, it's a different day. Remember, because they had those 613 ritualistic rules, you can't work on the Sabbath. Don't heal people on the Sabbath, Jesus. That's a big no-no in their minds anyway. He told them it wasn't, but they didn't listen. But even in their minds, it's now okay to work or heal on the Sabbath. So that's what they're doing here. The whole town, I did kind of have a curiosity to look it up. It's a very small village, like you saw the picture. At this time, it was likely about 1,200 people. So 1,200 people, who knows how many were sick, demon-possessed, but they're all at the door wanting to be healed. So Jesus was probably tired, you know, because he's fully God, but he's also fully man. It was probably a long night because it didn't start till sundown. Verse 35 tells us what he did. It says, very early in the morning, the next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went to a solitary place where he prayed. And this was kind of Jesus' prayer routine. We see it in other verses. We see it in different Bible stories. But it's a great reminder of maybe what our prayer routine could look like. Now, it won't work for everybody. Some of you might work night shift. Maybe you're more of a night owl, but let's look at what Jesus does all through Scripture. He usually went out early in the morning. It was a, a specific time of day. It was like not just randomly done. He did pray a lot all through the day, but this early morning was his quiet time to get alone with God. And he would also go to a quiet, solitary place with no interruptions. Maybe in your house, grandparents, parents, you got a bunch of screaming kids, Put on some headphones. Don't turn on music because that's a distraction, but put on earplugs. Do something. Cut out the white noise around you. Or maybe get out in the backyard. Find your own, maybe a prayer closet. I know people that have prayer closets where they kind of dedicate a little area in the house. Maybe it's an actual closet. Maybe it's a spare room. That's the place they pray. And when you get there, do what Jesus did. Just have a conversation. It's It's talking to God, but it's also listening. We have to give him room to speak to us. If I'm the one doing all the blabbing, I can't really hear what he's trying to tell me. So it's about listening to God as much as it is me talking and giving him all my laundry list of prayer needs or my friend's prayers. And you know, you may not hear an audible voice, hardly anybody does, but you'll have a prompting, he'll speak to you in your spirit, you'll have this urge that you need to do something, go somewhere, 
do a certain thing, go meet a person, talk to so-and-so about Jesus. That is how God speaks to us in our quiet time. And then finally, don't miss this one. He spent time with God outside of the synagogue. It wasn't just come to church, pray, do my thing, go back home, see you next week. It was spending time with God the Father outside of the synagogue and on a different day than Sabbath only. And and he did this over and over, so it's a great model for how we would want to have our prayer or our quiet time. Back to the text, verse 36. It says, Simon and his companions, that would be Peter, but he's not Peter yet, went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. In other words, where you been, Jesus? We couldn't find you. And in a way, they're kind of saying, you're getting famous. Word is spreading. The people are clamoring for you. Where you been? But Jesus didn't really care about that. He never really cared about public recognition. What he cares about, and he'll tell us in the next verse or two, he cared about expanding his father's kingdom. I am here on my father's business, as some of the verses say. And he'll tell us his main priority if I'll keep reading verse 38, which I'll do right now. Jesus replied as they're looking for him, let's go, let us go somewhere else. In other words, let's leave Capernaum to the nearby villages. And he tells us why, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. He's saying, I didn't come to heal. You might think I've come to do all these miracles. I didn't come to cast out demons. I will do that here and there. That is not my main purpose. He just gave us his main purpose, to teach the word of God clearly in a way that people could understand and in a way they could apply that to their own lives because these other religious teachers didn't give the people that. We're not a perfect church, but that's what we're doing tonight. We're going through the Bible line by line, verse by verse. It's the Calvary way, and we're trying to apply God's Word to our own personal lives. We're doing really what Jesus was doing. But it wasn't about miracles. Um, It's about sound biblical teaching, the same thing we kind of hang our hat on here today. So verse 39 says, He traveled throughout the Galilee region, preaching in their synagogues, and then as his side job, he drove out some demons. But his main job was preaching in the synagogue. Well, I've hinted I'm going to show us a map. Let's look at a map. I've been teasing you all night about this thing. There's the Sea of Galilee, which really, if you've never been there, think Lake Okeechobee. It's not salt water. It's fresh water. I swam in it when I was over there because I was curious Dove to the bottom, got me a rock. It's in my office if you want to see it. But look at all these towns around the lake. Capernaum is kind of at the probably, you know, 11 o'clock moment on the clock. That's the town we just left. But all these other towns get mentioned in other Bible stories. Genesaret, that's where a man was demon-possessed. On the bottom, very bottom right corner, Gadara. Remember there was a demon-possessed guy from the Gadarenes? That's Gadara. Way over on the far left, Nazareth, all of this is the Galilee region. And then kind of on the top right, Cana, that's where he did his first miracle when he changed water into wine. So he went through this whole region, and this isn't all the towns, by the way. This is one of the more kind of well-known ones. Traveling, preaching, teaching the word, trying to tell the people this is the way. 
the way to salvation. It's a new way. We already talked about that. So, verse 40, another kind of change in gears here. We had a demon man show up. Now we have a sick man. Verse 40 says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing... Not if you're able, so I think he believes Jesus is able. He's already heard what he's been doing. If you are willing, Lord, you can make me clean. So he believes he can do it. He's just asking, are you willing? Now, let's talk about leprosy just for a second because it's not really important. But most people see leprosy, I think, in modern times as an ancient disease. doesn't really happen much. We don't see it in America. Um, I'm not saying it never happens in America, but it's, it's still out there. I checked some figures just to make sure I went up here making up things tonight. Then you would catch me later and call me on it. 15 million people worldwide right now have leprosy. 15 million. It's not an old Bible disease. It might be in our country because it mostly is sort of sad. It mostly affects people in the third world or, or poor rural nations. And the number, I'll just give you the top three nations leprosy is prevalent. India is number one. Brazil is number two, probably not the city, more like rural, think rural Brazil where people really are living in you know, third world conditions, and then Indonesia. So India, Brazil, Indonesia probably have most of these 15 million, but it is it's still a problem in our world. We know through Bible stories the lepers were really like outcast. They were required to dress in like mourning clothes like they were already dead. Because the people literally viewed them as the living dead. They were kind of like, to use a modern word, looked at as zombies. And they, in some ways, probably looked like how we would picture a zombie. Because leprosy, it makes things fall off, like your fingers, your ear, your nose, body parts start falling off. So they kind of look like almost a zombie that we would see on TV nowadays. But they also were required, this was a Jewish, you know, rule, one of their probably many, they had to, everywhere they went, yell out, unclean, unclean, unclean. What is our title tonight, by the way? I was holding out till now, unclean. But it's not just the lepers that are unclean. We'll get to that in a second, too. But the people of the day, they would take that unclean even further. They thought and believed lepers had done some horrible sin. We don't know what you did, but it was obviously so terrible that God has given you leprosy for your sin. And they thought it was punishment, judgment, so they would treat these people terribly. But we know now it's just a contagious disease that was spread by you know, contact with a leper. But the Jewish rules said even your own family would basically disown you. They would distance themselves. Nobody could come within six feet of you, so no human contact whatsoever, ever. And even certain rabbis took that further, and they would teach and train their, their synagogue. If you see a leper come and start throwing rocks and make sure they stay longer, further away than six feet, throw rocks and keep them 10 feet from you because you might be unclean if they get too near. So think of what a sad life this leprous man had. Outcast, distant, disowned by his family. But they did all share, the whole pagans, Jews, all the people of this time period shared one accurate belief. 
Only God could heal leprosy. For the physicians of that day and even the priest, uncurable. If God didn't heal you, you were kind of cursed to be a walking zombie. But in a way, we don't have leprosy. At least none of us don't think we do. Um, But we're all unclean. If you look at Scripture, let's look at a verse out of Isaiah. I think it's a great reminder for us. We are all dirty, unclean. Some translations word that. With our sin. We were lepers in a way before Jesus saved us, weren't we? We were filthy, dirty. Even our good works, things we mean to do for the Lord, are not pure. They're like bloodstained rags. We're like dead leaves, no good, blowing around, no good for anything. And our sins have carried us away like the wind. That was us before salvation. But by the power of God, he cleaned us up. Because Scripture also tells us, thanks to Jesus, God now sees us as white as snow. As dirty and messy as we kind of, we all know we're still messy, don't we? I'll raise my hand, you know. But God doesn't see that mess. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's hard to think about sometime. Because we know we're not perfect. We're just messy people. We try to be holy, and God sees us as holy, but we make mistakes. We, we, we drop the ball sometime. But thanks to God's grace, God's mercy, when he looks at you, he doesn't see us. He sees his son who paid the price for it all. How cool is that? So we're not dirty after all. We were prior to salvation. We were unclean just like this leper. So once again, tonight if you're here, maybe you just came in the first time. You don't even know why you're here. Maybe God's trying to tell you, get your act cleaned up. I'd love to pray with you at the end of the service and just say, Lord, I'm unclean. And God will fix it right here tonight. Let's keep moving. I'm going to read the first couple of words out of the next verse, 41. It says, I'm reading out of the NIV, by the way. Jesus was indignant. Jesus was indignant. And once again, NIV. Now, if you look up that word in the dictionary, it means annoyed, offended, upset. So when this man, this leper, approached him, the NIV says Jesus was indignant. But many other translations, and I'm sure some of you are reading them right now in the sanctuary, says this a little differently. It'll say Jesus was moved with compassion. A different translation in some ways. Does that matter? Well, I think it does. Because in a way, at least in my mind, it shows Jesus' heart. In other words, was he annoyed or was he compassionate? That's a huge difference. Well, I even went back and looked at the, I'm not a Greek scholar. I very rarely would use Greek words up here, but tonight I'm going to. Because you've got to compare other verses. There's a Greek word, let me see if I can pronounce it right. Splenchnizomai. Splenchnizomai is the actual word that is translated indignant and or move with compassion. So we're going to look at another verse that uses that exact same Greek word. But I'll set the scene because you'll know this scene here. Um, Jesus learns that his cousin, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, as some of you like to call him, he was beheaded. So he's very sad. He withdrew to mourn to a quiet place like we learned. 
And he returns to find a large crowd of 5,000 people waiting, the same crowd he'll later feed. That's the setup of the verse we're going to read. Let's look at it. Matthew 14, 14. It says, Jesus went out. He saw this great multitude. He was moved with compassion. Splanchnizomai. He wasn't indignant in this verse, so as you can probably guess by now, I don't think he's indignant in that man's case either. He was moved with compassion. He healed their sick. So I think the NIV didn't quite get it right on this one. That's just my opinion. You make your own mind up. But I think we'll see as Jesus proceeds why I think he's moved with compassion. And by the way, if he is moved with compassion, like I'm kind of promoting right now, Dave's opinion once again, this would have been the opposite reaction of most of the people that saw this. They would have been disgusted. They would have had revulsion, maybe even thrown up because this guy's missing body parts. He's a zombie. Jesus, I think, had great compassion because that's his character. We know Jesus' heart. It makes sense. So now we can read the rest of 41. I only read three or four words. The rest of 41 says, he reached out his hand, he being Jesus, and touched the man, which would have been a huge no-no for anybody that saw this. Oh my gosh, remember there was a six-foot barrier. He touched him and he tells the man, I am willing. Remember the guy said, if you're willing, I know you can heal me. I am willing, be clean. Just like the demon, a couple of words, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left, and he was cleansed. He's clean, cleaned up just like that. That's a miracle because, remember, I already told us, physicians couldn't cure it, the priests couldn't cure it. It was uncurable, and it was a death sentence. Right in front of the crowd's eyes, this man is now clean. But don't miss how he did it. He could have just said, be clean, because that's kind of what he does say, but he touched him first. He reached out, broke all the barriers, all the taboos, healed him with words and a touch. So Jesus chose to touch him. That was intentional. Don't miss it. And here's why, I think, anyway. We already learned that these lepers were outcast by their own family. They could have no human contact. It had been years and years since anybody had touched this man. So what is he probably craving? A hug, a touch, human touch. Jesus, being God, would have known that. Once again, he could have spoke the words, which he did do, but he touched him first. This poor, lonely, isolated man got a human touch from the Messiah. Which brings up our next point if we're taking notes. How does it apply to us? Because it always has to come back to us. Because we don't have leprosy. We are made clean, were made clean, when he touched us at our moment of salvation. And we stay clean by staying in touch daily with Jesus. Spending time with him, praying to him, talking to him, having a conversation while we're driving the car. We stay clean by his power, not our own. Because remember, we're just messy people. We can't really do this by ourselves. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus to keep us clean. Not that we're losing our salvation. Don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. But he helps us 
do better. He helps us, you know, we're not sinless, but we have to practice to sin less. Be more like Jesus. He keeps us clean by this fellowship, this personal relationship that we talk about here at Calvary so much. Don't miss contact with Jesus in your life, my life. That's what refreshes us, refills us, restores us, cleans us up each and every day to be more like him. Let's keep reading, verse 43. Same leper, it says, Jesus sent him away, but now he's not a leper, he's clean, so he's really not a leper anymore, I shouldn't have said that. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this, in other words, don't go tell all the crowd about this, don't go tell the Galilee region, but go show yourself to the priest. Go to the synagogue, show the priest, and then offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony. Because in the Old Testament, we're not going to read it, but there was a a method of hyssop and other things, and you would show yourself clean to the priest, and he would pronounce you clean, and then everybody could now be near you, touch you, you would be restored. That's what he told the man to do. But why do you think he said, go show yourself to the priest? Besides that, the first reason would be to go through the prescribed requirements. Well, leprosy was incurable. What do you think the Jewish priest would have thought? Because he would have known that man. It's a small town. I told you it's not but 1,200 people in, in probably each of these towns. They would likely be shocked. How did this happen? Because in their mind, they would think like we would, only God could heal that. How did this happen? God must have done it. All I heard was this Jesus guy touched him. Is Jesus the Messiah? So he wants the Pharisee, the priest, to know he did it. But he does not want the whole region to know because that would cause a problem that we'll see in the next couple of verses. Look what the man did in 45. Instead, instead of doing what he was told, he's so happy, so you can't really blame the poor guy. He's been sick forever. Nobody's touched him. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news of his miracle cure. As a result, look what happened, though. This is kind of the sad part. Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he stayed out in the lonely places. In other words, he couldn't go in the village anymore. He was now known as the guy that healed the leper. The crowd would rush in, and he couldn't move freely. Yet the people, if I keep reading, says the people, even though he's out in the fringes of the city, the lonely places, as Scripture called it, the people still came to him from everywhere, like the 5,000 did in that verse I read that he ends up feeding. They came out of every city to the middle of nowhere to hear and see this new way of teaching. Well, this man, in my mind at least, probably meant well. He just couldn't help himself because he was so happy, so excited. But he really just caused more problems for Jesus' ministry. And he also, if you think about it, disobeyed Jesus. And I think he does believe Jesus has the power, so he knows he's the Messiah, he knows he's a man of God. Whether he knows he is God, it's unclear, but he disobeyed the man that healed him is another way you could look at that. And it possibly even might have caused others to not have access. So he could have limited other people's healing because, remember, the crowds would have been out of control. 
Which brings up a great reminder for us. Take it back to us. This man got ahead of Jesus. Our last point tonight would be, don't get ahead of God. For me, for you, let me say that again. Don't get ahead of God. Get behind God. What do we call believers here at our church? We don't call them Christians, if you're new here. Christ followers. We're not in the front. We're the followers. Get behind God, not ahead of God. Because even like this poor man that had leprosy, he meant well, but he just caused Jesus problems and caused other people maybe limited access. That's a great picture of what can happen for us. We think we have a plan. We have it all figured out. We forget to ask God. We don't ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. We get ahead of God. And what happens? We fall on our face. We, we have to pay the price because God didn't tell us to do that. We got ahead of God, and it usually ends bad for all of us, doesn't it? We've all done it. No condemnation, but we have to learn from our mistakes. We learn from this. We learn from mistakes in Scripture, but we also learn, don't we, from our personal mistakes. Don't get ahead of God. It'll go better for us in the end, won't it? We're going to pray for that as we close, but once again, I've said it a couple times tonight. If you've never given your life to Jesus and you want tonight to just make that commitment, you know, Romans 10, 9 says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you'll be saved. Don't leave here tonight wondering where your final destination is. But for the rest of us, I'm just going to pray for me and for you that we would just not get ahead of God. We would slow down, take our time, and let him guide our steps like he desires to. And don't miss next week. We're still going through Mark. It's going to be exciting. Mark is all about the life of Jesus. You saw a little piece tonight. You saw it last week. We're going to keep hearing more Jesus stories for quite a while until we get through the book of Mark. But let's pray. Lord, tonight, we're, once again, messy, imperfect people, and sometimes we do get ahead of you. Father, we need your help. Holy Spirit, guide us, nudge us, elbow us, and when we need correction, Lord, remind us to follow you, not to get ahead of you. And Lord, help us obey you more. Help us to follow you in, in a better, stronger way. Help us all, Lord, live a life that will be pleasing to you. And one day we'll hear those great words, well done, my good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said, amen. amen. See you this weekend.